Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In July 1940, the Hong Kong government evacuated the wives and children of British families in Hong Kong. There was no concern about how these people would settle in the new country, communicate with their husbands here or how they would reunite after the war. About 3,500 were sent to Australia. In his new book, historian Tony Bannum looks at the evacuees who had to come to terms with a new life and for many of the women, it was the first time that they'd had to cope by themselves. But some of these evacuees never got beyond Manila. The Eurasians, who Australia didn't want, under its whites-only policy. So what did it mean to be British in those days? Tony's book reduced to a symbolical scale the evacuation of British women and children from Hong Kong to Australia in 1940 is based on interviews with about 100 families. You can also visit Tony's website, Hong Kong War Diary. It was quite interesting. I used to run, I still run it today, a website all about the Battle of Hong Kong, but in the old days it was the only one. And that was great. That was a sort of the peak time of the web. People would come to me if they had any questions about Hong Kong and World War II. They would automatically find my website and email me. And I noticed very early on what a high percentage, unexpectedly high percentage, of emails came from Australia. And it always lodged itself as being a bit of a question mark. Why was I getting so many contacts from Australia when officially no Australian troops had been involved in the defence of Hong Kong? So they were all coming from what, Sydney, Melbourne? Oh, absolutely all over. Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, all the, the key cities you might imagine. And eventually, of course, I, I cottoned on that there'd been some sort of reason for a mass of people ending up in Australia. And that turned out to be the 1940 evacuation of women and children. So how did that come about? The war in Europe had begun in 1939. In 1940, of course, people in Hong Kong were starting to become aware that you already had the Japanese army moving south. Yeah, in fact, the, the key trigger wasn't the movement of the Japanese army. Of course, the fact that they were in China was a key point. The, the trigger, the catalyst, was really the fall of France because the British government realised that with France being occupied by the Germans or split by the Germans and Holland too, those two countries' Far Eastern possessions would be interesting to the Japanese. It would be tempting for the Japanese to step in. And were the Japanese to invade Vietnam and Indonesia, then you could see a sort of domino effect possibility and Hong Kong might be next. So, in fact, it was the UK government rather than the Hong Kong government who triggered that evacuation. We'll move on to your book in a moment. You've mentioned your website, so can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's the Hong Kong War Diary. So the Hong Kong War Diary project started off as being a very simple exploration of the Battle of Hong Kong, so December 1941. And quite accidentally, it grew forwards and it grew backwards. By forwards, I mean evaluating what happened to the prisoners of war, the Lisbon Maru, everything right up to the end of, the, end of World War II. And then it also went back in the past, because the evacuation, which this new book is about, uh, was in July 1940. And originally I hadn't expected to go back beyond uh, 8th of December 1941 when the Japanese invaded. So the War Diary project started off being about the fighting, expanded to being about the entire experience of the garrison from start till end, and is now expanding yet, yet one more time to being the story of the families and the long-term impacts of the conflict. Yes, because you've really covered many, many aspects now. And I think also when you began, um, there was precious little written about um, the Second World War here in Hong Kong or the, the defence of Hong Kong, the fall on the December 25th, 1941, and the subsequent uh, 
prisoner, uh, prisoners of war, plus uh, the civilian experience here. There was little to go on. So you've done that in a number of books. This one, as you say, looks at the civilian experience. So how did it come about? Was it people would like one day, right, husbands and sons, they have to stay if they're over a certain age, wives and other children go? It was very abrupt. There had been a plan written as early as 1922, based on the when, when the Treaty of Washington was signed. Treaty of Washington was... The Treaty of Washington, 1922, established the balance of power between America, Japan and Britain, primarily in naval terms, but also it forbade the building of new defences anywhere further east than Singapore. So at that point, it became clear that Hong Kong's defences could not be improved, and the British started to think that one day Hong Kong might be invaded by the Japanese. So it goes back that far. But uh, you're absolutely right. When the evacuation actually came in the end of June 1940, it was extremely abrupt. The service families, the the women and children of the servicemen, they were given 24 hours to prepare, 24 hours to pack, no previous notice. But being service families, they were sort of used to being herded around. And many of them had, of course, moved from one place to another as the husband slash father moved around to different postings. It was much harder for the the real civilian population, the women who'd come here by themselves, the women and children of businessmen, policemen, etc. They were given a little bit less than a week to prepare, but it was much more traumatic to them because they'd never been through anything like that before. Once again, trouble threatens in the east and the civilian population of Hong Kong is leaving the affected area. Families wonder where and when they will meet again. Britain sends Empress of Japan to take the women and children from the danger zone. The guns which arm the British liner Empress of Asia show they mean business in this China port. All loaded and ready to sail, the ships will soon glide out of the harbour. Mines and submarine nets guard the channel entrance to the British Crown Colony. They're headed for the Philippine Islands and after a 36-hour voyage, they arrive in typhoon-whipped Manila Harbour. Great Britain and the United States remove their women and children to the sanctuary of American territory. As they come ashore, 1,800 strong, they're taken over by soldiers of the United States Army. Most of the evacuees are to find a haven of rest at Fort McKinley. Yes, I can't imagine that if I was told to pack up within 24 hours when you're established, you have a life. Um, So people literally... And also I would have imagined they weren't only just told to pack up quickly, but there was a limit on what they could take. Yeah, uh, initially there was a limit to what they could take, a limit to the number of bags they could take. Um, But of course, when you only have a short time to prepare, that was probably the least of their worries. The biggest worry was that for probably the majority, they felt very comfortable in Hong Kong. Even on a relatively low, by expat standards, salary, they could afford domestic help. They, they, They lived very comfortable lives, didn't really have to do a great deal. And somebody was there to look after the children as well. So many of these women, when they were evacuated, found themselves in dire straits. They had far less money, they had no domestic help, and often for the first time they found themselves doing, or perhaps first time since they were very young, found themselves doing things like shopping, cooking, getting the kids to school, trying to find work. And many of them had either never worked before or perhaps worked a long time ago. That was psychologically one of the biggest hurdles for them. Was it a case of you must go or you've got a choice of going and if not, then you've just got to face the consequences here? It was mandatory, but that doesn't mean everybody went. So I would say probably as many as 4,500 to 5,000 people were told to get out and actually about 3,500 left. 
The others found excuses, sometimes formal, sometimes informal. For example, if you volunteered to join the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps as a nurse, or if you had an essential role, like being a stenographer or telegraphist for somebody in power, some essential service, then you didn't have to go. So, so what's a stenographist? Oh, uh, a typist. <laughs> oh, as a typist were known in 1940-41. So many of them made excuses and stayed, and of course they regretted that, because when they stayed, they ended up in Stanley internment camp. And they, uh, I've spoken to people who went through both experiences, and everybody who was in Stanley who I spoke to about this said, given the choice of three years, eight months in Stanley, or living alone in Australia, with all those worries about money and looking after the kids, of course they would have preferred to be in Australia. And also some of the women who did opt to stay and were in Stanley internment camp were sometimes resented by other internees because it was almost like they were using up some of the resources. Exactly. Uh, I, again, have many eyewitness accounts of men saying to them, you shouldn't be here. If you weren't here, we'd have more food. But that's probably not true because, in fact, the Japanese gave more food you know, according to the number of people there. And many other people have pointed out that the presence of children in Stanley Camp actually made a big difference to the Japanese, the guards, as well as the internees. And that made Stanley, although it was never a fun place to be and people were always hungry and bored, it made Stanley a more human camp than it would have been without the children. So what actually happened? Was there one ship, several ships, and, and how many people eventually did sort of leave? Were they leaving from Victoria Harbour? Well, there were three ships leaving Hong Kong in the initial evacuation, although a few more picked up the stragglers later on. And yes, they, they left from Kowloon side. And that first leg, of course, was not directly to Australia because behind the scenes the diplomacy was going on about where they would end up. The evacuation happened so quickly it was not formalised with the Australian government until the people were already at sea. So the initial port of call was Manila and all the evacuees stayed in Manila for about a month while things were being sorted out. Hong Kong evacuees leave for Australia. The Hong Kong Sunday Herald, August the 4th, 1940. Bound for Australia non-stop in a luxurious 26,000-ton Canadian Pacific liner, a small party of evacuees numbering just over half a hundred sailed from Hong Kong yesterday. They will travel down in luxurious comfort for the special suites on this palatial liner have been placed at their disposal. They will have the run of the ship. It was announced earlier that there would be no grading into three classes and that all will travel in one class. The passengers went on board at 10 o'clock this morning, having reported at the Peninsula and Hong Kong hotels an hour earlier. With them will travel two evacuation officials, a doctor and several nurses. Holder of several Trans-Pacific records, the Canadian liner is expected to set a new record for the Hong Kong-Australia route, for she will travel non-stop from this port. Scenes from the Kowloon Wharf just before the ship sailed were reminiscent in part of the earlier evacuees, with husbands and relatives down to see the evacuees off, and there were not a few tears. What good would it do? 
had husbands who were part of the, the military here. You'd also had husbands who were part of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps. So was there time for proper goodbyes? Oddly enough, there, there were. Uh, people had time for goodbyes. People had time for more luggage to be shipped on. People actually had time to go back to Hong Kong and pick up more light luggage and re-evacuate. They, they realised very on many of the evacuees, not all, realised that the government just wanted them out of Hong Kong, didn't really care where they ended up as long as it wasn't Hong Kong. So some of them moved to Singapore, and of course Singapore got invaded too. Some moved to other countries like Canada, and where the husband could travel, where they weren't a part of the garrison, for example, under orders, sometimes the whole family decided to evacuate, and, and basically the men followed the wives and children. On the Hong Kong War Diary Project website, you'd had a lot of contact from Australia. So did you just gradually build up, was it at the start of the book, a bunch of personal anecdotes? Uh, yes, and I would say the final book is really a bunch of personal <laughs> anecdotes. Uh, and this, this was not expected. It was quite, quite naive of me. When I started the research, and it's based on my PhD thesis, I really thought it would be the story of 3,500 people leaving Hong Kong, 3,500 people arriving in Australia, and 3,500 people coming home at the end. And, of course, it wasn't. It was 3,500 very, very different stories. The only linking point was that they had originated in Hong Kong at a certain time. And then, once they left Hong Kong, they just spread out everywhere. Because, again, as I said, I expected people to come back to Hong Kong or go back to the UK or whatever, and many did. But particularly those who lost their husband uh, in the battle or their father in the battle, they had been in Australia by the end of the war for three and a half or more years. Actually, I'm sorry, five years because the evacuation was so early. And they had made homes there. And there was no real need to go back to the UK or back to Hong Kong for many of those women. And rather than go through another trauma of leaving Australia, re-establishing yourself somewhere else, that's why they stayed. And that's why so much of my correspondence came from that country. It's interesting seeing some of the stories of, of course, uh, men who passed away and sometimes it was in hospital after the fall of Hong Kong, so they were effectively POWs, but then they died of their injuries. And you talk to, or some of the sons have told you, about their experiences and being told of their father's deaths. You have to remember it was in the context of a war. And I remember one of those sons telling me, how matter-of-fact it seemed to him that his father would have been killed because everybody was hearing similar stories. And I don't just mean all the Hong Kong people, but, of course, Australia had many men fighting in the Air Force, in the Middle East, uh, in the Army in general, in, on ships, and correspondence or phone call or telegram about you know, dad or, or husband being missing weren't that uncommon. So they, they almost felt it was part of normal life. Of course, the women, it had a far more dramatic effect. And one of the, I suppose, saddest things I came across was a lady and her daughter who, when they heard that the husband slash father had been killed, they both had mental breakdowns. And I tracked the correspondence and the financial aspect of that between the Hong Kong government and the institution where they were until about the mid-1960s. So, in other words, they never recovered from it. No, it must have been hugely difficult. And, and also, when we think about these days, the level of communication that we can do in order to find out if somebody's safe or alive. Um, I mean, I read all the time about stories of the Second World War. People don't know for, you know, two, three years that their, their loved one is alive. And I would imagine that's a huge mental strain. Uh, absolutely. Um, and perhaps made worse because the lag in communication could be completely confusing. 
it would be possible to hear about your husband dying and then get a letter from him sent from a prisoner of war camp maybe six months before or a year before. So there was complete confusion, which made things worse yet again. The, the first accurate data about who had been lost in the fighting came when the first escapes happened. So when people left POW camp or, or Stanley internment camp, escaped and got back to the UK, they brought lists of people or even just remembered who, they, who they'd seen in camp. And that was the first hard news to get out. So typically, n- people had no idea who had been killed in the fighting and who had survived until at least April 1942, if not after that. And then, as I said, the, it got more confusing because of the irregularity of contact after that point. This book was your PhD thesis? Yes, it was. I, I did my PhD at the Australian Defence Force Academy because I felt it was more of an Australian story than anything else, as it turned out. Uh, and initially, in fact, I called the project One in a Thousand because a back-of-the-envelope calculation had told me that in today's Australian population, one in 1,000 people had their roots in the Hong Kong garrison or Hong Kong civilians of 1940. In fact, later refinement of that showed it was more like one in 2,000, and uh, that's why I changed the title of the book, because it didn't, didn't really sound compelling enough. But it's still a very high percentage of the population to have a direct connection with Hong Kong in 1940. Now, you mentioned the sort of symbolic evacuation what did you mean by the use of symbolic well it was a cheat uh, i must admit winston churchill made a paragraph a statement which was a paragraph about hong kong and that paragraph included the words not the slightest chance which i used for my first book the book about the fighting it included the words we shall suffer there which i used for my third book about the prisoners of war and it included the term reduced to a symbolical scale now what churchill was actually referring to was the possibility of evacuating the garrison as far as possible. But I thought that 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 phrase actually fitted very nicely, the the evacuation story. I'm talking with Tony Bannum on his latest book, Reduced to a Symbolical Scale, the story of 3,500 evacuees from Hong Kong who left here to go on boats to Manila and then on to Australia. You can also look at Tony's work in his website, the Hong Kong War Diary Project. Are you Dr. Bannum now? I am Dr. Bannon, believe it or not. It was funny because on the route to being a doctor, of course, it was very important to me to get it. Uh, Once I became a doctor, you know, I don't want anybody calling me doctor. (laughs) In terms of the, you've got 3,500 people there, but could we actually hear about, you you described obviously the tragedy of uh, the mother and daughter who had the mental breakdowns. What I feel is also you'd have had children four or five years who really didn't know their, their, their fathers. So you would have had examples of that. Uh, yes, again, with the, the wide range of ages, you can have examples. From, from a population of 3,500, you can have examples of almost every permutation. So many of the children, in fact, were born after the mother left Hong Kong. So the pregnant mums, some of them ended up in Singapore, some of them stayed in the Philippines to de- deliver their babies there. So the father had never seen the child, and of course some of those fathers lost their lives as well. So it was a fascinating period, and you know, if you were 15 or 16 being evacuated in 1940, by the end of the war, you were an adult. And those kids, they grew up and they joined the Australian Army or the Australian Air Force, uh, and some of the, the ladies married, uh, for example, American soldiers who were in Australia. So everything changed. Five years is a long time, uh, and it doesn't really matter what age a child is at the start. They're a totally different person by the end. So again, every possible permutation you can imagine I I came across at some point in the research. I was reading about uh, one 16-year-old. He was 15, 16 when he went 
to Australia and he actually came back to Hong Kong and volunteered once he was a, a young adult. Yes, that's right. For, for the boys, once you became a young adult, you could return to Hong Kong. The restriction was only on females and children. So a number did come back to Hong Kong. One or two of those were killed and the rest become, became prisoners of war. So again, with the bigger families, it was quite possible to leave a husband and perhaps an older son in Hong Kong, move to Australia with the younger kids, have one of those younger kids grow up and then move back to Hong Kong. Families got split apart. And one of the stories I came across was a real mess where the father was a, a naval captain and the mother and daughter evacuated to Manila. Uh, they had a friend there, so the daughter stayed with the friend. The wife actually managed to come back to Hong Kong and when the Japanese attacked, the father sailed away on his boat. So you ended up with the father serving during World War II in the Royal Navy, the mother being interned in Stanley and the daughter all by herself in Manila. So again, with a big enough population, you see all these different experiences, and that was a, a fascinating part of the, the study. There must have been also a lot of, um, I would imagine, as you say, five years is a long time. Uh, people become lonely. People don't know whether their husbands are alive. So, And I've come across this where, you know, the husband returns home and, and the wife is remarried. There must have been that kind of emotional mess as well. Yeah, you know, very much so. And in Stanley as well, Stanley being a mixed camp, uh, again, you know, five years is a long time. People's attitudes changed and perhaps little things that have been going wrong in the marriage became amplified in that period in many cases. I didn't calculate or even try to calculate the number of marriages that broke down, but clearly, intuitively, it was a, it was a higher percentage than you would expect in, in peacetime. And many, many stories, and all of them slightly different. I said earlier when we were talking, Anne-Marie, that... Some of the women who went to Australia, many of them initially, found that looking after themselves was a real tough challenge. Many of them, of course, given that independence for the first time in their lives, actually relished it. And they loved being in charge and looking after themselves and you know, sorting out the financial side, where to live, where to work, looking after the kids. And when the husband joined them at the end of the war, that husband was perhaps not quite as relevant as he had been. So it didn't happen just one way. Sometimes the, the women were very independent at the end of the, of the war and uh, basically said goodbye. Difficult, really difficult. Now, who was allowed to evacuate? Was it just white people? This is the, the big question which dominated the, the press and the talk in 1940. The definition of British. Who is British? The Eurasian population of Hong Kong, they thought rather reasonably that if their son or father was British enough to be part of the garrison and defend Hong Kong, then they should be British enough to evacuate. That wasn't necessarily what the authorities wanted. Now, I have to say the Hong Kong authorities were very good. They were colorblind. They said we should have all British people evacuated, and by British they meant anybody who was Eurasian, you know, pure Caucasian, whatever. They also wanted to evacuate the key Indian and Chinese families who they thought would be attacked by the Japanese in the case of invasion for being too close to the British. So they had a very inclusive evacuation plan. The Australian government at that point, though, had the White Australia policy, which did not want non-Europeans in the country. So it got as embarrassing and painful as some Eurasians getting as far as Manila and then simply being told, well, there's no place for you on the boats onwards to Australia. And those families were publicly turned back. And the newspapers carried lists of returning families. Many families, many of those families I know today, is all, all the names you recognize for the, from the Eurasian community. 
and there was a lot of bad feeling. It was funny, a lot of the, the British Caucasian people were angry that they had been evacuated against their will, and a lot of the Eurasian community were angry because they weren't allowed to evacuate. So everybody blamed the Hong Kong government. In fact, the Hong Kong government, in my opinion, one of the conclusions I came to, did a fairly good job. The British government and the Australian government were the ones who really controlled everything. And they, particularly the British government, were in a difficult situation because Australia had its own spin on who should be allowed in and who should not. Did you actually list the 3,500 people? Did you talk to as many as possible? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, I did come up with a, a list of about 3,500 with all the details I could find. So the name and age of all the evacuees and where they linked back to Hong Kong. Because the, the unique situation I was in was having done all that previous research about the garrison and who was in Hong Kong, who was interned in Stanley, who was in POW camps. I could link all the evacuees back to somebody in Hong Kong and that meant I could understand the impact to them because I knew which husband had been lost, who had been in POW camp in Japan, when they'd reunited at the end of the war from that side of the research. So yes, very detailed. I didn't get all of them. Every now and then I come across an example of somebody who's not on my list because the 3,500, that basic number who were evacuated in the formal evacuation plan, there was also another set of evacuations. I said that um, a key point of this is that the government, the Hong Kong government, just wanted people out of Hong Kong. And provided they went out, they didn't care where they went. So some families decided just to go by themselves, unofficially, to Canada, the UK, the US, or whatever. So it was more than 3,500 evacuees, if you include the formal and the informal ones. So I, yes, I, I made my list, and in the end, I contacted slightly over 100 families. In many cases, the evacuees themselves, particularly those who were children at the time, because, of course, um, not many of the older generation are still around. So I had about 100 sets of correspondence, which drove that part of the research. It's all a long time ago. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're already at the 75th anniversary. Is there a lot of point to this? Uh, that's a very good question. Is there a lot of point? I would have done it even if there had been no point, because I'm just that, that sort of embedded or entrenched in studying this particular part of history from so many different angles. But it does matter to people. There are a surprisingly high number of people around who feel that their roots are in this tragedy, whether it's the Battle of Hong Kong, the POW period, the evacuation, whatever, or sometimes all three. It was a very traumatic period for a family. And sometimes, not uncommonly, mother never spoke about it or father never spoke about it. People who went through these experiences had typically, I wouldn't say typically, but very often some kind of psychological impact from it. Uh, and that reverberates to the generations who are still around today. Uh, and some of the cases, are you can understand the trauma. One young lady was evacuated, a, a child, with her brother and mother. The, the father was killed in Hong Kong defending Stanley. The mother became very ill and went to hospital. The brother died of diphtheria, then the mother died. At the start of World War II, this lady was part of a sort of perfect family. By the end of World War II, she was an orphan. So her children want to understand what their mother went through. And this is something I get all the time. What happened to my mother? What, 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 did, what did they experience? Because you can imagine how hard it is to talk to your own children about that sort of thing and how relatively easy it is to talk to me. Mm. I don't matter. I'm, I'm not part of your emotional circle. You can go through all these things and tell me about what happened to you. I'm just a fly on the wall. 
I, I have developed good listening skills. Uh, I do a lot of mentoring at work. I, I work with people and understand what they're doing and help them help them themselves through it. And that's very much what I did with a lot of the people I spoke to, evacuees, POWs, internees, etc. Just let them express themselves. And then I would document it. And then when the next generation comes along and says, well, what did my father do? What did my mother do? I can tell them stories that their own parents could never tell them. My thanks to historian Tony Bannum talking there on his new book, Reduced to a Symbolical Scale, The Evacuation of British Women and Children from Hong Kong to Australia in 1940, which is published by Hong Kong University Press. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>